Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Well, as you know, airlines are always looking to save a buck or two one way or another. Uh, now, I mean, on the one hand, you get that. It's expensive to run an airline. It's a, not a cheap business. And so as prices go up, airlines are looking for ways to pass the increased cost that they are taking on over to the public, which creates angry customers, I would think, especially if all these costs are making things much less comfortable. If you've flown in the past, I don't know, decade, decade and a half, you you know what I'm talking about. There's no meals, narrower seats, uh, surcharges to bring your bag onto the plane, to check a bag, all that kind of stuff. But a company out of Britain is now suggesting something which could be the mother of all airline fee possibilities, but also the mother of all things that will create havoc in airports. Pay by weight. Pay by, I didn't say that wrong, pay by weight. Not your bags, you. You pay based on how much you weigh. That couldn't possibly go wrong, could it? We bring in Brett Snyder. He is the guy behind crankyflyer.com, a very, I would think, appropriate name for this topic. Brett, really appreciate you doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me back on. By the way, nice intro music there. Yeah, hey, <laughs> that is Ben, who's on the on the controls. I have no idea where he found it, but it seems to be rather perfect. Uh, I can't imagine a concept or an idea that would probably create more bad feelings and rage and anger and upset around an airport. Can you? Uh, this would be up there, that's for sure. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, this would not be a good idea uh, for the most part. Now, it doesn't mean it's a bad idea to weigh people in some instances, uh, but and there are benefits to that, but trying to charge by the pound is, um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. I, I, we were joking, and I mean, it is a thing we were joking about, although maybe they're taking it seriously, but before you came on during the commercial break, Ben and I were chatting, and we were joking about how this would look if they actually did it, because you couldn't ever do this on an honor system to say, when you buy your ticket, tell us how much you weigh. That, that's not going to work. So you would have to have some kind of scale at the airport so you're like a cat, piece of cattle that's getting on a plane. It just the whole thing has an image that just seems crazy. Well, you'd quite literally be like luggage because this is what happens with luggage. You go and check your bag, and there's a scale there, and you put it on, and they see, make sure it's above or below the weight, and then charge you more if they need to. Uh, so it would it would basically be the same thing if they were to do this. Yeah, and and here's the thing: you've you've flown a million times. Most people have flown enough times. You go through the security now, where you have to go into that little booth that you put your hands above your head and stand with your feet. Even that, some people with the X-ray or whatever are feeling maybe like the airline is getting a little personal or whatever else. Again, could you imagine walking in and having to stand on a scale and having Jolene, the airline person, say, oh, okay, you're in at 250 and this is what it's going to cost. I mean, it would be, <laughs> there would be more fights and more anger than there already is, which is saying something. Oh, and, and it would just make, it would make it take so much longer. Uh, and, you know, then you'd have people playing the games like, okay, well, I was putting all my jackets on and everything else so I didn't have to pay to check a bag. But now if I do that, <laughs> I'm going to have to pay more to, to get on the plane. So, uh, you know, it just creates all these different uh, opportunities here. I, I don't think we're going to see this happen, uh, but, you know. But that said, it, there, it has been done. It. Samoa Airline apparently did try this or has tried I don't know if they still do it, but they did try it. Yeah, so, so there, is, there is a good reason, especially on smaller aircraft, 
uh, to actually weigh people because, you know, that can make a big difference. Generally, what the airlines have to do now is there are set weights that they just assume on average for people, and they use that as their calculations for weight and balance to figure out, you know, how much fuel they need and everything else to get safely where they're going. Um, and it's heavier in the winter because they know people have coats and things like that that they bring with them, but that's really the, the only big variation they have. Uh, so with smaller aircraft in particular, where it's really important to spread the weight around and, and distribute it, and, and by small I mean really small, you know, not not 50, 100 seaters. Uh, but um, so, you know, actually having people's weight can make a difference from a safety perspective there. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, a, that's a niche type of, of instance. Mm. Um, and, and, yes, actually charging for it, that, that's a different story. And I actually haven't heard how that went at Samoa Airways. I, I don't even know if they're still around, frankly. But, uh, you know, that, that's something that's a really niche type of thing. Well, one of the things, and I, as I was reading on this today, because I, I was trying to understand the concept besides just let's gouge passengers even more if we if we can. But planes obviously have to carry enough fuel to get from point A to point B, and the amount of fuel they take is determined in some case is in large measure, I guess, by the weight and how much they're going to have to pull. But fuel also has its own weight so the more fuel you add it's actually adding more weight so you're burning more fuel just by having more fuel i mean there is a business case in some ways for doing this yeah oh yeah sure you you can absolutely make the business case you can look at it and say from a cost perspective uh you know this is how it costs us money to carry weight and it's the same thing that they made the argument about baggage uh you know it, it costs us money to carry baggage bags weight uh, a certain amount more. So if you want to bring a bag, you should pay for it. Uh, but airfare in general usually isn't cost-based pricing. They're they're pricing it based upon willingness to pay and what people are willing to pay. So if you started doing it based on how much you were costing the airline by your weight, that, that's really probably not the most efficient way to do it. Brett, even without the the fuel part of this. There is an other issue, though, with larger passengers these days, and we know that a fair percentage of North America's population now falls into the obese category. And it's not just about the fuel anymore. It's about what happens when someone goes to get on the plane and they are too large for the seat. Um, This has been a touchy issue for a long time, hasn't it now? Oh, absolutely. You know, you have, uh, on some aircraft, the seats have gotten a little thinner, but for the most part, you know, legroom is a little more restricted. You just have less personal space. Uh, at least in coach. And, uh, you know, if you're sitting next to someone who's particularly wide, uh, then that can really impact your personal space even more. Uh, and it's something that uh, that causes trouble for people, for sure. It, I mean, not the least of which is actually the person who's flying. It's incredibly uncomfortable if you're larger and can't really sit in those seats. Is it the suggestion has been made before, though, that if you are that size, that you should have to pay more? And it's all, as I say, it's always been a, a struggle because you don't want to be, I don't know, mean or unfair to larger people. But what is the answer for this? First of all, what have airlines done and what's the answer? I think what the best uh, solution I've seen to this is, is Southwest does this in, in the States here and the other airlines have done this as well as they say, look, if there's an empty seat on the airplane, you can just pay for one seat. We'll put you next to the empty seat, and you know it, it's no extra charge for you. However, if you want to guarantee that there will be an empty seat on the airplane next to you, then you can pay for two seats, and you have to pay 
double the amount for that. Uh, and that seems to be the, the most fair. It, it, nothing's perfect, of course, because you have so many different people that are impacted by this. But uh, that, that does seem to be the most fair. And what happens if I've... you get on the plane and you don't fit into your seat and there's not an extra seat? What do they do? Uh, that's where it gets really tricky because it, it's entirely up to the, the flight crew and the um, you know the gate agents to make that determination of you know is this person too big? There's no sizer like there is for your carry-on bag, right? This, this is this is a subjective thing, and they have to make that decision. Uh, usually, what'll happen from what I've seen is if it really is someone who's too big and, and can't fit and there's no room for this to happen, then they'll usually take that person off the airplane and. Uh, tell them they can get on the next flight. Hopefully there will be an empty seat. They can do it for free. Uh, but, you know, that's that's something that gets handled on a case-by-case basis, and there's no clear structure of exactly how that works. Uh, the, the tricky, the, the difficult part about this, of course, with that is it's really, I'm assuming, really uncomfortable to have to go up to somebody to say, I'm sorry, you're too big, you're too fat to get on this plane. But what if you're the person who's sitting next to that person? Not doing anything would be grossly unfair to that person. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And, and this is also, though, you know, you talk about uh, people by weight, but you can't really even judge this by weight because it's all body type, too. I mean, someone might be particularly wide and not as heavy as someone who's really heavy, but uh, not that wide. And, and so they can fit OK. So uh, it's not something you can really do very well in advance. And it requires the traveler to actually police it themselves and know if they're going to need this. And, of course, not everyone does that, and not everyone wants to pay for the extra seat, even if they need it. What what I found really interesting about this today as I was thinking about this was we don't seem to have any uh, concerns or delicate tiptoeing around. If someone was six foot ten and they can't fit, we would say, you know what, you got to pay extra and buy a bulkhead seat or buy a first-class seat. We don't – there doesn't seem to be any of the same concern or same – um, whatever it is, uh, uh, long as opposed to wide. Because those are issues, too. If you are really tall, these planes are not built for you these days. Absolutely. I, I don't have that problem. I'm five foot eight, so it's fine <laughs> by me. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I hear this from people without question, people that are above six feet that, that really have uh, this problem where if they sit in regular coach and – in the back, that's where legroom has really been restricted more and more over the years. They can't fit, and they say, I have to buy an extra legroom seat uh, because I just physically can't fit there. But you've heard some rumblings from people saying, oh, we're going to you know, push through regulation or do something to take care of people that are too large, but nothing ever really comes of it, and it, it certainly is different than, um, than the weight or you know, with issue. Yeah, we don't to, we don't seem to have a delicate sensibility around pointing out the height of someone as being a problem, but we certainly do with the width of someone. And I mean, I listen. We understand nobody nobody has ever been, I don't think, insulted by saying, "Wow, you're tall." Un- you know, unless right. Anyway, uh, sadly, I got to yeah. run, Brett. I'd love to. We got to do this again sometime. Uh, Brett Snyder, go read his stuff. It's crankyflyer.com. It's a terrific site, Brett. Really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. You're welcome. Uh, Radley at 900CHML.com would love to know what you think about charging extra for weight. Hmm. (laughs) That is a messy one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900CHML. I want to talk about sleep for a few minutes. We don't talk about sleep very much. We either sleep or we don't sleep. (laughs) I mean, really, that's... When do we talk about sleep? Uh, Because most of us, for most of us these days, it is a luxury 
If you can get a good sleep, that is a bonus, but we got a lot of stuff to do. And again, we don't really talk about it because who actually thinks about it? And when we do think about it, here's the part. According to a new study, most of what most of us think about sleep is wrong. Who knew? I mean, there's lots of areas where this is the case. We like to think we're really bright about a lot of stuff, but turns out more often than not, we don't know what we're talking about. Well, sleep is right in that wheelhouse. Many of the things that we believe about sleep when we think about sleep, I keep coming back to that point, apparently is a crock of hooey. So let's, um, let's bring on someone who actually does know a little bit about this topic. In fact, more than a little bit. Dr. Rebecca Robbins is a postdoctoral research fellow at New York University's Langone Health School of Medicine. She's the co-author of Sleep for Success, and she's the lead investigator on this study that has just come out talking about some of the things we don't know, or at least think we know, but don't know about sleep. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. It's a pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me. Just before we get into the the nuts and bolts of this, uh, it, it dawned on me today, when people talk to you who don't necessarily know you and they say, oh, what do you do for a living? And you say, well, I, I study sleep. Do you get the same <laughs> immediate respect as a doctor who would say, oh, I research cancer or I look into communicative diseases or whatever? Because sleep mm. just seems like it's one of those things that people would not even think that you need a doctor for. That's a good question. Um, you know, certainly I, I could see that is that being the case. I can only speak to the experience of um, being a sleep researcher and getting that, getting the response of uh, sometimes perplexed, mm. sometimes you know it's a look of confusion, <laughs> but often um, more times, nine times out of ten, I find people dive right in with a question, and that's one of the main reasons we wrote this paper. And to your point, sleep is something that we think we can, you know, we do, and we, we don't really have to worry about it, and hopefully it just comes. But um, unfortunately, that's not always the case, even for the best of sleepers. We sometimes go in and out of periods of insomnia or poor sleep, um, kind of health broadly. And so our paper set out to, um, hopefully, by debunking some myths or misconceptions about sleep, we're um, hoping to empower our readers and um, spread awareness about the, the, the behaviors that are evidence-based when it comes to sleep. I was thinking today, and this is a ridiculous example that I'm using, but I thought of sleep kind of like a dishwasher in the sense that I don't ever go look for, looking for dishwasher ads or talking about dishwashers or concerning <laughs> myself with dishwashers until I'm needing a dishwasher and suddenly Desperate. I'm fascinated. No one ever thinks about sleep until we either are too overtired or can't sleep or have some sort of problem with it. That's a great point. And there are, however, um, actually 89 differentially diagnosable sleep disorders. And one of the myths in the paper uh, has to do with one of the most pernicious sleep disorders called obstructive sleep apnea. And the most common symptom of that disorder is snoring. Now, snoring is quite common in the population. The myth that we found in our paper is the belief that snoring is annoying, but it's, it's pretty much okay. It's nothing really to worry about. And this is a myth when that loud snoring is coupled with repetitive pauses in breath over the course of the night. And now this is a disorder that affects, we believe, about 30% of our global population because it's strongly correlated with obesity or um, higher body mass index positions you to be at greater risk for this condition. So snoring coupled with that pauses in breath, uh, or if anyone on um, 
listening in tonight has ever experienced someone saying that they cough frequently over the course of the night and apparently to to resume breathing, that can be a bellwether sign of sleep apnea and it must Hmm. be treated. See, this is one of the things, and I want to get into a bunch of the other ones in a moment, but this is one of the things... one of the main issues with this, and that is, I think most people, if they think they have a sleep problem, figure that it, they can fix it themselves. It's just, it's momentary, mm-hmm. and you know what, I'll, okay, I'm overtired, I'll eventually, when I'm tired, I'll just go to sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, I don't think too many people think of it, again, like a lot of other illnesses or ailments or problems where if you mm-hmm. had something else, you would say, oh, I've got to see a doctor for that. I would think very mm-hmm. few people actually go and see a doctor, relatively speaking, for sleep. Well, outside of the uh, the context of sleep apnea, one of the, again, the most pernicious and uh, concerning sleep disorders, generally, you know, in a perfect world, we would have be empowered with the knowledge and the skills on you know, should you face sleep difficulties, a period of, you know, having trouble falling asleep or too much tossing and turning. Should you experience a period like that in your life, you'll know what to do. But, you know, the interesting thing, Scott, is that the vast majority of us don't really learn much about sleep. You know, we take health classes and many of us now know a lot about exercise and and nutrition, but we find in the sleep field that there's actually a lot of room to move the needle on education and awareness about what is good from a sleep perspective. And I would think a lot of people honestly would believe about sleep that it's a a bit of a waste of time. I got other things I could do that is more important. Mm, Now that is a myth. (laughs) Well, no, but I think is that not, but but that would Uh, be an issue that or a position that a lot of people would take. Absolutely. Unfortunately, that's a um, a very common belief that we're trying to, um, that we're really setting out to, to recorrect. And doctor, just before we get to some of these other misconceptions we have, can you walk through the physiology just for a minute and explain to me why our body feels, t- what's going on in my body when I feel tired? Why am I feeling tired? So sleep is a physiological response that we um, simply have after being awake for a certain number of hours. I wish I had a cure to alleviate you of the need to to sleep, but there's so much activity that happens in the brain and the body over the course of sleep that um, we're really trying to shift our our notions that sleep is a waste of time towards a view of it as a really critical part of our our health and our well-being. So when we're not getting enough rest, we know these effects all too well. Um, We feel worse. Our mood is affected immediately, but there are also uh, physiological responses so we see in, in the lab, for instance, when we deprived indivi- deprive individuals of sleep, they wake up and they're much less likely to make good nutrition choices. And so that can spiral out of control when individuals practice uh, sleep deprivation consistently or consistently cut themselves short of sleep. Now, we also see in the long term, there are some pretty concerning health, health conditions that are associated with consistent and sufficient sleep, cardiovascular disease, and we're also having um, uncovering some evidence now on neurocognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease and dementia and mm. the like. So it's um, a really critical part of our really overall health and well-being. Let's go through some of these misconceptions that you found, because some of these are really interesting. And frankly, I was surprised because I thought they made a lot of sense. And it turns out they don't. But that's, I guess, why you do a study like this. Uh, (laughs) One of them is that uh, my wife teases me all the time that I can fall asleep in the car. I hit the pillow and I'm asleep. I thought, oh, this is really healthy. I'm I'm just, you know, I fall asleep (laughs) immediately. Apparently, this is not necessarily an indication that I'm doing things right. No, Scott, the well-rested sleeper actually takes about 15 minutes to fall asleep. So if you're well below that, 
so that you're falling asleep as soon as your head hits the pillow. Or if you tell me, you know, I get in an airplane and I'm out before I know That's it. me. That could be a sign that you're not quite getting enough sleep. So you might think about adding a little bit more time to mm. your overall uh, sleep schedule. The average adult... Um, the vast majority of us need between seven and eight hours of sleep at night. So we need to spend the time, but we also need to keep a consistent bedtime schedule. This is what children often do so much better than us as adults, but keeping a bedtime and a rising time so that your body can be to when you want it to be tired and when you want it to be awake. That brings us to the next one, which was you were suggesting in this that we cannot train ourselves to get by on less sleep because that's what we always hear CEOs and company presidents and actors and stars and oh I've tur- I've learned how to get by on 4 or 5 hours sleep you're saying that's not true mm-hmm. no and I always hear that terminology too you know I get by on you know x hours that that are below 7 um, but maybe you can get by but you are truly robbing yourself of so much potential. If you left a little bit more time for sleep, you likely will will wake up more refreshed. You'll be a better spouse, a, be- a better family member, uh, uh, better at your job. And uh, we also see uh, physical and um, hand-eye coordination benefits as well. So if you're working on your tennis game or your, your golf game uh, or professional athletes, we, we see an improvement after we introduce a healthy sleep schedule. What about the opposite? Can you sleep too much? Great question. Now, this was actually, you've touched on one of the myths that that is an area of of the the literature that's actually a little bit contested. So there are two groups in the field of sleep. The first says more sleep is always better. So if you sleep for nine hours, nine and a half, great, more the better. The other camp says that the sleep duration window of seven to eight hours is actually very precise and much more than that is actually hazardous. So this is still an area that we have yet to, to firmly understand in the literature. And one of the things that's confusing to us um, and hard to tease out kind of, you know, which type of, you know, which what the answer is, is a lot of the research with uh, longer sleepers has been done in patient populations that have chronic conditions or mm. other illnesses that are causing them to sleep longer. One of the points you make here, I must say, I was very disappointed to see this in your study because uh, this hits very close to home. Hitting the snooze button does not help. I I am telling you the snooze button helps. It does. I believe it helps. Why are you telling me it doesn't? Well, you and Scott and so many others tell me uh, the same. Now, what that snooze bar does, if you're hitting snooze and you tell me, you know, oh, it's great, I got another, you know, X number of hours. Now, that sleep that you're going to get after this news bar is very, very poor quality sleep. So you might be getting, you know, more sleep, quote unquote, but the best thing to do is to think about the time, the last possible time that you can wake up, have time to get ready, get to your early meeting or what ha- whatever you have on your, your docket for the day. Uh, but pick the latest possible time. So that will allow you to get enough sleep and then hit the snooze bar and commit to getting out of bed. It's tough because our bed is warm and the bedroom is uh-huh. often cool. Uh-huh. Um, but really commit to doing so and um, and you'll see some benefits accordingly. Well, I, I wish we could go through all of them. We don't have time, unfortunately. Let me just throw some of these out there and then tell people where they can find this. Uh, it doesn't matter what time of day you sleep. That's another misconception. It does. Uh, a little bit of booze before bed to help you fall asleep is going to be helpful. No, not true. That's not going to help you. And if you wake yourself up in bed or you wake up, just lie there and you'll go back to sleep. That's good too. See, all these things that I truly believed were legit 
all my beliefs and whatever are being shot down the drain by this. Uh, where I found this story and where people can find it, there's lots of places. Uh, CNN's website, Wake Up People, You're Fooling Yourself About Sleep, study says. Uh, it is a great, very interesting thing to read. Dr. Rebecca Robbins, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. God, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Sleep well. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we'll, we'll try. Uh, that is, uh, again, go read it. Again, CNN's website, Wake Up People, You're Fooling Yourself About Sleep, study says. All the 10 points are there that they found that were misconceptions. Probably, if you're anything like me, you've got about seven of them that you thought were true that aren't. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys, who are a couple weeks away from the start of their next season. And the owner and operator of ComChoice Realty, among other things. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Scott. Beautiful day out there. I love the spring. Yeah, it's uh, it's gorgeous. It whoever whoever told us to stop idling our cars to prevent climate change, please start idling your cars again and fast. Driving uh, up towards Ancaster Day in the sleet. Mm. Bouncing off the windshield. It was absolutely stellar. I didn't even bring a jacket today because I thought, oh, it's spring. I wore a short sleeve polo shirt. I thought, oh, it's going to be lovely outside. And I stepped out of the office to come over here and I... Realized how clever you were? I realized how clever I was. Got so cold, my nipples could have cut glass. (laughs) It was nippy out there. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Oh, man. Hey, uh... (laughs) Don't throw that stuff to me. I'm not good with that stuff. <laughs> I got a lot of things I want to get to today, and I just threw myself completely off. Are you surprised by what the Blue Jays are doing? Is this right whole now? thing going to be about body parts? No, it will not. Although female that, body parts. Th- th- that was a male body part, but um, for the record, um, <laughs> are you surprised by what the Blue Jays are doing? Speaking yeah, of spring? I am. Absolutely. They're not dead and buried already. No, uh, they started off the way everybody thought they would. Terrible. But I think. What I've learned over the last uh, probably month, that the experts that are asked to predict on sports and the outcomes of series and seasons um, are just feeling airtime. None of them are accurate. See, I disagree. And I'll tell you why. The Jays are doing pretty well. They're at 500. Did anybody figure they'd be 500 this time of the year? No, but... They also have played Boston, and nobody figured that Boston was going to absolutely stink. Boston has just completely, they're in their World Series hangover, and they are the same guys as last year. No reason to think Boston would be this bad. And the Yankees, I think the Yankees have 15 guys on the yeah. DL right now. Which they got a whole team out. Which is stunning. It's yeah. just, it's stunning. And so, would the Jays be 500 if Boston was playing remotely like their talent suggests they should and if the Yankees had a full roster? Probably not, but still. They haven't just played Boston. No, no, but they would. They played three against Boston. I think, they, did they not sweep Boston or win two out of the three? Or three, three out of three. Four? So, so, so if, if Boston sweeped the series, they're two below 500. Yep. No, no. Look, I, the Jays are shocking a lot of people be, by the fact that they are being competitive right now. They really are, and good for them. It, and it may not last. Well, my point is the prognosticators are uh, overpaid. In some cases, in yeah. some cases, but uh, you must be defending friends. No, no, no. But I, I, there are there are things beyond just the Blue Jays. I want to give credit to the Blue Jays because they have done better, especially lately, especially they're hitting. Because when they started the year, their hitting was as bad as... It's like you. 
Like having you play. May as well have. Yep. May as well have. I mean, their hitting was as bad as I can ever remember seeing a Major League Baseball team hit. Well, they it didn't really look, was. They didn't hit like a Major League Baseball no, team. they didn't hit at all. But they're doing, I mean, they're they're stumbling through. I mean, some of it isn't pretty. I mean, yesterday they had to score four in the 11th to win. But, I mean, think of, th- it doesn't take a lot. We're only a month, we're not even a month into the season. Go maybe a month today. Think about those first two and a half or three weeks when game after game after game, you went through the first three innings without a hit almost every single night. And you looked at it and you said, man, this is, your pitching is going to have to be so good. Well, you know what? Their pitching has been very good. Their pitching has been that good and their hitting is getting better. Yep. Obviously. And it took some adjustments. I mean, they got a lot of young players. I mean, this is an expensive process. I mean, they're, they're basically, I'm done the arithmetic. But they're damn near paying as much to have guys play for other teams as they are having guys play for their own teams. Yep. But, you know, they've they've sucked it up. I'm still not perhaps that enamored with the president and general manager, but we'll give them some time. It's only a month. Oh, just wait. If this continues on, oh, if, if they continue to win and hang around 500 or better for any length of time, Oh, you're going to be hearing about how genius and how brilliant the general manager and president are. It'll be a nonstop reminder. On one station, for sure. Well, I look, I, credit to the Blue Jays, and didn't I knew absolutely nothing about Charlie Montoyo before they hired him. Absolutely nothing about this guy, and I would say that there's nobody else that knew anything about him either in the Toronto area. Maybe some people who are around the team full-time knew of him, but there's nobody who could possibly say they knew what this guy was made of. And you know what? He is he is coming across like a guy who, for now anyway, is going to be okay. I but, really like John Gibbons. I like the drawl, the laid-back approach. I but just, they seem very similar, actually. He's old school. Yeah, but my, my point is, and I'm a John Gibbons fan, I'm not sure if John Gibbons was given this cast of characters, they'd be in the same spot. That's my point. I know. That's my point because th- I, I think they, John Gibbons is a pretty good manager, but they, they're different. They come across as very similar guys. I thought that when they left John Gibbons, when they fired John Gibbons or let him go, whatever the word you want to use, I thought they were going to go to someone who was a very different kind of guy to deal with very different kinds of people. I thought they were going to go to a guy who was maybe more of a tough guy or, or whatever. It looks like he is John Gibbons only with a Puerto Rican accent instead of a Texas accent. Yeah. Very similar. And yet he, you know, maybe it's just a change is good. Maybe it's just that, I don't know, but good for them because I, well, I did not expect them to be at 500 at any point this year after the first day. And the exciting part is that they, they are where they are in the standings at 500 and Vladdy Jr. is going to hit 732 home runs before the end of the year. Well, he's got to hit one first. He, and, and I look at, you know, there was, a, there was a little bit of talk. I don't know if you heard anything about him coming up last weekend. It was, it was kept very quiet, the fact that they were calling him up. You almost didn't know. If you weren't really paying attention, you would have never known that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was coming up. Well, he did it to stay away from the Leafs and the Raptors. I mean, what's the point in having him play when the Leafs are playing? Yeah, but it's, it was... And I don't know that the Jays could have done anything about it, but Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had to be, even though he looked very relaxed, he he was feeling pressure. You know he was. That was the most overhyped arrival yeah. of anyone in history. 20 years old. 
maybe the only guy that might have in recent years had a even close would have been Austin Matthews. And I don't think that I don't think even Austin Matthews' first game with the Leafs came with the hype that Vladimir Guerrero did. Austin Matthews scored first four goals in his first game. But with I'm the talking Leafs. before he showed I up. Agree. All the talk I, I about everything. I don't think it was close. I don't think it was even close. Had a pretty good start though. His start was phenomenal, and his whole first year was phenomenal. But up, I'm talking about up to the moment that he arrived. I don't think that even Austin Matthews was in the same pardon me, but same ballpark as the hype and the anticipation and the talk around Vladimir Guerrero, and not just in Toronto, yeah. all over the place. Well, and and, 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 and the big part is there was nothing else to talk about. That doesn't, you know, that nope. puts the spotlight square on them. Well, I mean, there is the Raptors. There is the no, Raptors. no. I mean, in, as far as the Jays are concerned, oh. there's no known apparent superstars outside of Vladdy Jr. But that poor kid, and I, and he is, he's t- just 20 years old, yeah. and he's not going to be poor for very long. <laughs> um, but he, he, you know, that even though he had a big smile and he looked okay. He's feeling the pressure with that. You got once he gets a couple of hits, once he hits his first home run. I absolutely expect, based on his track record in the minors, that it'll all fall into place. But well, until that happens, you know that even he is going to be squeezing that bat. Every uh, every analyst looking at him, and all the people that have seen him play, and the numbers all support the fact that unless something really goes awry, he'll be a superstar. Doesn't mean he will be, but the numbers, as you said, all indications at every level he's excelled at, and there's no evidence it won't continue. Let me ask you about this. You have been a coach for many years, not necessarily a soccer coach, but so there is a game on the weekend. Sunday, Leeds United is playing Aston Villa, and an Aston Villa player in the middle of the game goes down with an injury, gets tackled on the field, and he's down, and typically in... And these two teams, by the way, are fighting for promotion to the first division. They're in second division in the Premier League. Typically, if a guy goes down and stays down, the referee is going to blow the whistle and award a kick, but at least stop the play. In this case, he didn't stop the play, let the play go down the field, and leads while Aston Villa was short a man, went down and scored right away, which this flies in the face of generally what you would do because even if the ref doesn't blow the whistle usually in soccer the other team if they notice that the team is a man down with an injury will just kick the ball out of bounds and stop play to allow for it anyway so Leeds scores uh, leads to a brawl because Aston Villa now is ticked off that they didn't follow the usual protocols Leeds manager Marcello Bielsa at the kickoff ordered his team to allow Austin, Aston Villa to go down and score a goal. Just let them go. Just gives them a goal to tie the game up and the game ends in a 1-1 draw. Decided that etiquette is more important than the win and this is how you do it. And so he is both being lauded for his fair play and his respect of the game and shredded for not taking advantage if the ref doesn't blow the whistle, if the ref doesn't stop the game, you play till the whistle, and too bad it's on the ref. What What do you think about that? Which Which side would you fall on? I think I know, but screw him. I'd have taken the guy. I wouldn't give up a goal. You're trying to get in, you're trying to get in the next division. The guy. I mean, there's more there's more diving in soccer than there is the Olympics, and maybe the guy realized that you know this might be our best chance to slow things down. What if he's faking it? I mean. I 
I don't know enough about the beautiful game to know the etiquette of it that you should perhaps just hoof the ball out of play to let the guy get up and generally he pops up, never misses a play, runs faster than the other guys. There isn't a chance I'd have ever said, just let him go down and score the goal. It's the right thing to do. See, I applaud the coach's sportsmanship in this because it's the etiquette. But I'm with Shake you. his hand after the game. But I'm with you on the one part, and that is that soccer has made its own bed at times with the diving and the flopping that you don't know when a guy is really hurt. I think it's different. If it's hockey, remember a few years ago, I think, um, man, what was his name? Uh, he used to play for the Flyers, then he played with Colorado. His career ended when he played with Colorado. He went to block a shot, and he stopped it with his face. Oh. LaPierre, La LaPierre, no, anyway. Um, and it was a horrible injury. And he went down and his face had just exploded, basically. If I'm on the ice and for some reason there's a guy down who is clearly, unquestionably, absolutely in complete distress, and for whatever reasons the ref doesn't blow the whistle, I got no problem firing the puck back to my end or something and then saying, blow the whistle here. This guy is really, if, if you can tell that there is no That's question... Right. That the man is in dis- distress, but, but I think that's different. But that, but see, you raise the point, and I think you're right. I think soccer has, in some ways, made its own bed because you don't know when guys are flopping. You don't know. So, really, what the general manager was saying that his guys were all wrong for carrying on and scoring. I can assume if he's going to do the right thing, he'll replace most of his team, or the guy that scored the goal should be suspended. Now kicked what if, off the team. What if you saw that the guy was down? Would it change your mind if you saw that this guy was down with like a dislocated ankle or something? Yes. Would that, would that change your opinion yep. on that? But I don't know that. I only know. No, what no, you've that's me. not the case. That's not the case. But no, I'm saying yeah, if you could see that his leg was veering out to the side and was bad. Look like broken, Joel Theismann when he snapped that off. Sure, stop. Stop and let them get out show, there. And show help a little respect, like the guy getting a puck in the face. Right. But if you've got uh, a soccer player that's laying down, the odds are only fifty-fifty. Is anything wrong with him? I mean, they've made that bed. I'll be damned if I'd say, clear the way, boys, let them go down and score the goal. See, because it comes to me. And, and say, you know, I might be wrong. I doubt no, it. No, well, I, I think of the uh, the 150-meter race between Michael Johnson and Donovan Bailey at this. Remember at Sky Dome? Yeah, Johnson the pulled the shoot. And he didn't pull his groin. He pulled the shoot. And I think to myself, okay, so should Donovan Bailey have said, oh, you were injured Let's come back here in five months when you can be healthy again and do it all over again and give you a redo. I, I don't. He wasn't injured. He was pulling the shoe because he was getting beat. I and see, I agree with you, and I think most people agreed with you. Now, if Michael Johnson had taken four steps and his ankle had popped out and it was sticking out sideways, that's different. That's a very different thing to me. It, it is, and so in this particular case, <clears throat> I I applaud the coach's effort for trying to exhibit sportsmanship. I do. I, I think that it's it's a refreshing thing to see someone who wants to follow the etiquette and follow the the kindness of the game. I'd like to get that soccer... Go ahead, sorry. No, 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 no. I, I'd like to get that soccer team and take them out for a bunch of beer and I just buy beer, beer and use it like truth serum and say, we're locking the doors, there's only me and you guys in here. What do you think of your manager? That would tell you the truth. And if you could ever get, you know, you have to apply them with beer, likely draft beer to get them the truth, but I'll guarantee you there'll be a lot more guys saying, screw it, we needed the win. You know, we can be nice later. Be nice next game. You know, be nice if you're up 4-1. 
I want to know what the owner's saying because the difference between the uh, division, the top division, and the second division is millions of dollars to the owner. Now, what I can't tell from this, and I don't know the answer, and maybe someone listening saw this game. Maybe someone can offer some advice on this. But here's the next part: if you're going to follow, if you're going to have a game that is this deeply enmeshed in etiquette, and there are games, golf is like this, and other games, and I, and I get that. If the player who hit the turf and was down came back and played again, if he was not really injured, if he was able to get up a minute later and continue going, to me, now the coach that scored the... So the team that gave up the goal, the other team should then say, now you go down and score on us because he's not yeah. badly injured. Like, keep let's keep doing this as long as it takes to sort out the etiquette of this. Well, be, like I said, I can only base my comments on what I told you, and I'm looking at a, a still picture on the screen, so I can't. it's not telling me anything other than what you told me. Based on what you told me, I think it's nuts. Again, I... I but you're right. Have, I mean, did the guy get up and play again? We have two... If, if he did, somebody on the other team should have dummied him. Well, we have too little sportsmanship <laughs> in sports, honestly. We do, often. We have too little good sportsmanship, so... I'm always loath to be dumping on somebody for exhibiting good sportsmanship. The problem is, and we go back to this, I think that diving in soccer is poor sportsmanship. I do, too. I, do. I, th- I believe that it's that is... It's a travesty of the game. I believe that is poor sportsmanship. And when you have it happen in the game over and over and over so that you can't now tell if someone is legitimately injured or not, you have created your own mess in this way. And I'm not saying that particular team or that particular guy. I don't know enough about it to talk about the particular player who went down. But you have a sport that we know when you watch the World Cup, when you watch the Euros, when you watch UEFA, when you watch any of these things, this is an issue. And so when you've created an issue and the sport has not found a way to clean itself up, and, and believe me, there is an easy way for soccer to stop this. There is an abso- Don, there is an absolutely easy way for soccer to stop this diving stuff in the modern age every game now has a ref up in the booth watching the game on multiple camera angles and everything else because they're in contact with the ref who always has the headset on now for was it a goal that it crossed the line all the rest when a guy goes down and stays down and draws a penalty or draws a card that ref up in the booth should be looking at that and if that guy did not get taken down it should be called down immediately and say red card you're out of the game to that guy. To that guy. The, the guy, guy, who the guy that took the dive. And you want to know something? That first game you do it, it's out of that game and a one-game suspension. Next time, it's out of that game and a three-game suspension. It would take you five minutes to yeah. get diving out of the game. Yeah, some of them, some of them go down like they're shot. Well, riddle me this. If there was, allegedly there was 17,000 people at Tim Hortons Field. I think there probably was. Yeah. I think there probably was. Um... For the first game of Forge on the weekend, yeah, I thought it was. I mean, I thought it was, uh, Bob Young deserves uh, uh, tremendous credit. I mean, he he likes the the beautiful game. He committed to bringing it here, and by all accounts, he's doing all kinds of wonderful things. It's not the attendance, which I thought was brilliant. I mean, sometimes you can have free attendance and nobody comes. That means nobody cares. But if you give the gift back to the community and say everybody can come as my guest and you get 17,000 people to come, you've accomplished something. But had this have happened, and I, I, I might suspect that um, the people in Europe, that were, in England that were watching this game, may have maybe a little more 
educated on the etiquettes of soccer than all 17,000 that were in Hamilton. What do you think would have happened if the same thing happened on Saturday at the opening game? And Hamilton said, go down and just yeah. score on us? Tell me how that works out. I, it would not have played well, I don't believe. I don't believe it would have played well at all. And I think there'll be a lot of people going, what in hell are they doing? What's going on? Now, I didn't how see often it. do they do this? I didn't see the whole game. I watched part of it on TV. I'll say this. For that league, and I don't know if this is going to continue, but there were two or three times where there were fouls that in Europe might have got you a red card that got no foul at all. And I don't know if it was because the official just wasn't very good and missed it. Or, or they're going to let them play. Or if they're going to let them play. And that's another thing. If you decide that you're going to let them play, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to get rid of the diving because you know it's not going to get called. Uh, get called or it's going to allow for guys to really start chopping people down. But then you know if you're down, you're really down. I don't know if that's a better situation or not. Might be more fun. I mean, full contact soccer, I've never seen, but well, there were a couple. There was there was uh the the one guy who was the midfielder, I believe, for Hamilton. Ball went out of bounds and he ran through and stuffed his elbow right into the face of a guy and knocked him down. I thought, "Man, that's in 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 England or in some other places, that's well, this that's, is not a red, that's not a red card. That's a fl- he's throwing red cards all over the place. <laughs> he's just chucking red cards in the air at that point. But it's Canadian soccer, and my that's the point is that if we're not if this league or any other league says, you know what, we're not going to call it if you're down on the ground. So just get up. It's not worth your while to flop around. Maybe that goes away. Anyway, I I, I found the I. As I say, I, I don't want to discourage. I never liked the idea of discouraging good sportsmanship, but the flopping, not, I don't know if this was a flop or not, but the flopping that happens in soccer is also poor sportsmanship, and I don't see anybody saying, well, then we have to do something about that as well. I have to show sportsmanship for that. right? It, it, like, there, are, there are all kinds of areas around the field where sportsmanship could be shown. You know what? If if my if your team is down, I, if that guy had flopped, you're right. Next time he comes down the field, if you've just given up a goal, it's the opposite of good sportsmanship. But I'm surprised that coach wouldn't have said, "Make sure next time he goes down, it's because he really was down." Well, that's what that that's when you tap Bubba on the shoulder and say, "Son, I know you haven't been out all year. Now's your chance." Yeah, that's why. You See the Radley kid. Yeah, he's finished. That's why you have a six foot eight, three hundred pound midfielder. So, so let me get this right: you're all for sportsmanship, but if the guy gets up and starts running around full tilt, you're not sure you don't go after him. No, no, I, I know it's inconsistent. I, I, <laughs> it, I, absolutely, it's inconsistent. And the point being, this is part of the challenge of this: when diving is also poor sportsmanship, and you're making a mockery of it, and then the other coach is. If it was a dive, I don't know. Then the other coach is saying, okay, we're going to show you the great sportsmanship to give you the goal when goals are so hard to come by in soccer. You better not be milking the system. You better not be milking the system. Well, that coach, if that kid was okay, he should have taken him out of the game. Even if he was okay, take him out of the game. If that kid was okay and popped up a minute later and you see that he could have walked it off, I'm saying the coach that got the benefit of the free goal should have turned around and given the other team the goal back yeah. for the one goal lead. I mean, it, it'd be a fun way to finish a game, eh? Just everyone walking up and down the field is beating the ball into the open net. They they think shootouts are exciting. Watch this. <laughs> Watch this. It's the non-shootout shootout. We're just gonna 
touch it from midfield and sweep. <laughs> Hurry hard! We could do like soccer curling. Don, did you happen to tune in at all on either Thursday night, Friday night, or anytime Saturday to any of the coverage of the NFL draft in Nashville? Not a second of it. I got to tell you, it was the one of the most stunning things I've ever seen in my entire life. It was one of the most stunning things I've seen in my entire life. Now, the background of the story is that my daughter and two friends, university semester just ended. They went on a girl's few-day road trip and drove down to Nashville. <laughs> they go, they, no, they're not NFL fans at all. And they went downtown to try and go for a meal or something, and they were realizing there were a lot of people wearing football. So they don't, they don't even know the NFL draft's going on. No. And there's all these people with football stuff on, and hotels were exorbitantly expensive when they tried to book. So they got one, they got a place <laughs> out of town. Very well pre-planned, obviously. Well, no, they, I mean, they just never dawned on them that yep. the NFL draft would be there because they don't follow the NFL. And I was texting her one night, and I said, are you downtown? She goes, yeah, there's like 100,000 people down here. What's going on? <laughs> and I was like, well, it's actually 300,000, I think, and it's... The NFL draft. And I said, can you not see the stage? Can you not get to the stage to get a picture? She goes, there is half a mile of nonstop body-to-body, shoulder-to-shoulder people between me and the stage. If you watch the TV coverage of this, it was in downtown Nashville, right along the strip where the, the arena is. Uh, if you watch any of the playoffs last year when the Predators went to the final and they had those parties outside, that whole area with all the pubs and the bars and everything, that entire strip was jammed. You could not see it was it was Woodstock in the streets of Nashville. It was un, and I'm looking at this, Don. There were people. I'm not exaggerating. Half a kilometer away from the stage, maybe more. Why would you go? Why would you want to be? Why would you go and be that far away and like? What it? would? Well, I mean, I suppose it's a big street party. Yeah. But at some point, I'm I'm thinking the same thing. What is the point? And just, yet, this is you. This is American football culture. It it blew me away. There is nothing that compares in this country. There isn't uh, Stanley Cup Finals. No, the, maybe. I mean, look when we when the Leafs don't talk about the hypothetical. No, no. But when the Leafs or the Raptors are in the playoffs and they fill up the Maple Leaf Square, that yeah. But, and there's three or four thousand people there. Were like, wow, what a big crowd outside. This was anyone who's been down to the Air Canada Center or Scotiabank Place, I guess now knows where it is relative to Rogers Center. The two of them, there's a street that basically you can connect all the way from the dome to... Imagine that entire street jammed with people all the way from one end to the other. That's what you're talking about. Which, if the Leafs were ever in the Stanley Cup Finals, maybe you do that. Maybe that many people come out to watch. I don't think so. But it was... I I could not believe that you could get that many people out for a draft. For a draft... To have Roger Goodell come up and there's a little ding, 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 little bing every time a dra- the pick is in. And he goes, you know, with the 18th pick, the Minnesota Vikings take so-and-so. <sighs> okay, drink a beer. I mean, like, couldn't, you're standing there in the rain to listen to a man announce the name of a young man who's going to play football well or poorly. We don't even know. It's stunning. And three three young Canadian girls walking, university kids walking around go, what in hell is going on here? They managed to get a seat up apparently on the, one of the rooftop restaurants and were able to get a, but yeah, it was, I can't, I can't think that there is anything in Canada 
even on a relative, even on a, mar- a relatively prorated scale. I, I don't think there's probably anything in the world like that. I, maybe not. Well, I mean, how many people? Soccer, soccer. It, it, when Brazil is in the World Cup yeah, final, perhaps. some of these teams they would be out in their town, in their square. Yeah, I, but how many people went to the uh, Super Bowl parade with uh, Tom Brady and uh, maybe a million? I don't know. Is it a million? I have no idea. But that, but but that's a celebration of your community for something that you've achieved. I mean, if the Leafs ever won a Stanley Cup again, huge hypothetical. You would have a you would have close to a million people on the streets of Toronto. I'm sure of it. There might be a million people if they ever went around. <laughs> that could be too. But you you would get hundreds of thousands of people in downtown Toronto if that ever happened. There's no question. Maybe that's maybe that's why there was so many people there. They all went there. No, instead? no. I mean, you think about think about what we're talking about here. Um, draft, and there's a round every five minutes. Maybe it's a drinking party. Could have been. But this was not a celebration of an achievement. This isn't watching an event where you can, well, it is watching an event, but not the kind where you, as a community, cheer, because everyone was cheering for different teams and whatever yeah. team. This is, those kind of things I get. Those kind of things I understand. If you had 50,000 people on the street of Nashville for the Stanley Cup final but last year, that I get. See, the NFL do things right. Uh, they do a lot of things right. And they they hold a draft in a party city. Oh, right? yeah. Nashville's a party city. You mean... Right, I mean that's why college kids and university kids why the go Super there. Super Bowls are in New Orleans and stuff. Well, all the I was going to say they don't. They never hold the Super Bowl in in uh, Green Bay. They never hold it in Buffalo. Right, they always hold them where you can exploit the party atmosphere and the festivities of everything. Like they, they really are selective on how they do things. Now I think the uh, they don't have to do it anymore. But you know if if you if they were going to award a team in uh, North Dakota, they'd be saying, you'll never host the Super Bowl. You understand that, right? You'll never host the draft because the draft's going to be in L.A., Super Bowl's going to be in L.A., it's going to be in New Orleans. You know, It's going to be where we can have a party and throw a big party. So they do it right. I couldn't help but think about, now it won't be, again, obviously it won't be remotely on the same scale, but I couldn't help but think about the Grey Cup coming up in Hamilton and thinking, on the smaller sliding scale, how does Hamilton do something like this? Well, You're not going to have 300,000 people. I understand that. You're not going to have 300,000 people in the streets. But how do you have 20,000? How do you make it so that you've got 20,000 people that decide to come to the city and be part of what's going on? And I don't know how you do it here. Well, I mean, for, uh, the first reason you don't do it is the weather. I mean, how nice was it in... In, uh, well, it was raining. They were still outside. It was rain. It was pouring rain. And well, they all stayed outside. Well, they they're, all all, got, and they're all a bunch of idiots then. Well, they're probably all half in the bag yeah. too. But. but it's warm. I mean, it's a festivity and it's warm. And if um, the Grey Cup were played in um, late August, where you're assuredly it's not going to be, you're not going to need a jacket. If it's raining a bit and it's 75 yeah. or what, it, yeah. what is it going to be, 23, 24 degrees out, Age impact, 23, 24 degrees. It's a lot easier to have a party. And they don't have any rules about drinking down there. Now, Doug Ford's changed all that. He'll turn Hamilton into the largest tailgate party in North America. But down in New Orleans, and I'm sure in um, Nashville, if you bought a beer in the bar and you wanted to walk out and take a look at what's going on, nobody's stopping you. Didn't look like it. But that's, that's where they hold those things. 
I just looked at this and I, the times that the TV was on, it was, it was absolutely stunning to me that you could have that many people that would be that interested, that would fly from all over the country to stand in the street to yeah. listen to someone have their name called. That's all that was happening. Now, they had a band playing, but again, the band was half a mile away from where you were standing. They had Tim McGraw playing after the second night. So, but, okay. It, but, so it was, a, it was a show, but you're half a mile away, a lot of these people, and I was like, well, good for you, I guess. But, here, but here's the perspective. Our uh, entertainment district is half a block long. It, at uh, the King Street side of Hess Village is a parking lot. Across the road is an apartment building, and beside that's a law office. So our, our entertainment district with bars, if you even did let people walk out on the street and have a beer, is half a block long. 300 people, and you've got a full street. Right? I mean, yeah. put it in perspective. I mean, we're not, uh, we, we, it's, it's just not built that way. That is true. That is true. If you get a chance, uh, go online and just, if you didn't see it, look on uh, some of the videos of what was going on. It is, um, I don't know that I'll ever see that again. That, and, and part of it was the, 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 the shape of the street. It was a, it's not like it's a massive freeway. It was, you know, a typical main street, maybe two lanes each direction. So four lanes of street and all these stores and bars and everything, and it was absolutely jammed. It but 300,000, that's two-thirds of Hamilton would have to come to the party yeah. to have 300,000 people yeah. there. And now line them all up, starting at the Spectator building, and go for five or six blocks at least up Main Street and see how it looks. I mean, it was um, it was unbelievable. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.